Good morning, everyone. Good to see you, Shore Church. Please go ahead, um, grab your Bibles and open them up. We're going to be picking it up where we left off, left off last week, Colossians 1. We're going to be reading from verse 15 to 23 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you or one in app form, um, you can just go ahead and put your hand up. Our ushers have some really great Bibles. I'm kind of eyeballing these myself. Um, these will last you for a long time, but we'd love to give you one as a, as a gift so you have one to go home with. So if you don't have one, go ahead, put your hand up. Um, someone over there and someone on ushers, please. Yeah, thank you. So um, if you were here with us last week, you'll recall that we opened the book of Colossians by taking a look at a prayer that Paul had for the Colossian church. And we looked at, we looked at four things, um, four elements of Paul's prayer. First, that they would be filled with the knowledge or that word epigenosis that we kind of spent some time dealing with. The knowledge, the full revelation, the, the epigenosis of who God is so that they could walk in a manner worthy of God. So as to bear fruit... And then he closed it off by praying that they would be strengthened by his, meaning Jesus' glorious might. Now, you'll recall that um, we mentioned last week that there are a number of different ideologies have been working their way into the church. Um, this came as a result kind of just as living in the midst of a culture, rubbing shoulders with different ideologies and worldviews and beliefs around them. But the chief of which, the, the, the one that Paul really has in his crosshairs, in his sights, is that of Gnosticism. Now, this is because what the Gnostics were teaching about Jesus was very different from what the Bible teaches. Now, depending on which camp of Gnostics you talk to, they would either say Jesus was divine but not human, or more likely than not, he was human but not divine. And so if you hit the streets in Vancouver today and you ask people, who is Jesus, they probably fall into this camp as well. He's a good moral teacher. He's kind of a... <coughs> Gandhi-like figure, dispensing moral tidbits. It's a, a blonde guy, blue hair and kind of a 60s haircut. Or a first century Fabio, usually photographed holding a lamb. More likely than not, though, people would say, it's just a, a clever, make-believe story that's been blown way out of proportion. Who Jesus is, though, it's the most important thing anyone can seek to understand. Because who someone thinks Jesus is determines whether or not that person can, in fact, have hope. That's a big statement, but I believe it. I'm going to back it up. If I was to word that a little different, the level of hope one can have is directly related to who a person says Jesus is. It's directly related to their knowledge or epigenosis of the revelation of God in the person of Jesus our text this morning, Paul is going to seek to put a clear picture of Jesus, Jesus before the Colossian church and us. So please go ahead, grab your Bibles, Colossians 1. If you would stand with me for the reading of the word of God, Colossians 1 will begin in verse 15. He, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. For through him 
to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, in which I, Paul, became a minister. Let me open us in a word of prayer. Father God, I just, I thank you for the revelation of yourself. Thank you that you've preserved your words for us, and that these words to the Colossian church are not just for a church 2,000 years ago, but they're for us this morning. I pray, Holy Spirit, would you ignite, would you catalyze this word of Christ into fire in our hearts and in our minds, and would would not just our minds be transformed, would our lives and our walks be transformed? And so I hold up what I've prepared, and I thank you for meeting me as I read the scripture this week. I pray you would meet us corporately now, and I commit this time to you by the power of the Spirit, in the name of Christ, amen. We'll go ahead and have a seat again, church. Now, scholars have noticed um, in the first five verses of our text that we're working through this morning, something unique in the Greek language. There's a certain, there's a rhythm, there's, there's a prose to what's going on, and most conclude that this is in fact a hymn or a first century song that would have been sung by the church. And this got me excited because I got this picture of, of Paul dictating this letter to the Colossian church. Remember, he's in jail, so I think he's probably speaking this out through some bars and somebody's outside writing it down on some parchment. And, and, and he's speaking, then all of a sudden he just starts to sing. And this person's trying to write it down as fast as he can. Paul's speaking, and then he just bursts into song. He burst into the song, into song for the same reason that the lovers don't just write notes. They write poems. They go to the pawn shop, they pick up a guitar, they learn three chords, and they write a love song. They compose songs because their heart's so struck by something. Paul broke into song because words weren't enough. He needed a better medium. Amazing things stir us. There's a couple images up here on the screen. Um, my wife and I had the pleasure of living in South America, and um, right before we left, we went to the southern tip of the continent, and we spent a week hiking into this mountain range here in the Andes. Um, 100K in, seven days later, we get to the, right here, the base of Torres del Paine. And, and I gotta tell you, this is the most amazing place that I've seen in nature. It's breathtaking. In the morning, the mountain range behind it has a thin slit in it where the, when the sun comes up, it lights these three peaks red. And as that happens, you just stand there and you go, holy, this is unbelievable. This is, it blows your mind. You can't be quiet. You can't just look at each other and go, ah, let's turn back. It's, it needs more. This January, uh, I got to travel with MB Mission to India and I had the, a day off, so I woke up super early and caught a train to Agra and um, I went to the Taj Mahal. But I didn't go in to see this view first thing in the morning, because everybody's here. I went to the other side of the river. I wanted a photograph no one else was getting, and it was complete fog, and I'm wandering through this garden, and then all of a sudden, the fog broke as the sun came up, and I was actually right underneath the Taj Mahal. And it's, it's towering, to, it's giant. And I remember just all of a sudden feeling something where I was like, oh, 
We're hardwired to be awed. We're hardwired to be awed by things. But Paul isn't bursting into song over a thing. It's not a great mountain. It's not a great piece of architecture. It's not a great statue to a mystical god. He's pointing to a man. There's something about Jesus that he wants us to see. Peter, in, uh, in 2 Peter 1.16, he says this, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses to his majesty. There's a majesty to Jesus. But if you rewind a bit in the Bible and you go back to Isaiah 53, verse 2, we read there, it said that Jesus had no form of majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. I bring this scripture up because I want us to see what Paul is pointing to. He's not pointing to a man. Per se. It's not, not to Jesus' person. There's another, um, there's a, a, a study that's been done a few years ago. You may have come across this. A bunch of scientists sought to, to figure out what Jesus would have looked like. And so they actually went and they, they found skeletal remains of first century Semitic men and they kind of cross sectioned their skeletons. And they had lots of them, I don't know how many. And and what they did is they comprised kind of the average-looking first-century man to make a picture of Jesus, kind of an idea of what Jesus would have looked like. That's up on the screen here. Not necessarily who we imagine Jesus looking like, and not necessarily good-looking. Not trying to be disrespectful, but they're saying Jesus was probably about five foot one and 110 pounds. Blows my preconception of who Jesus was right out of the water. I'm over a foot taller than Jesus, is what they're saying. Paul isn't breaking into song over how Jesus looks. The world wasn't turned upside down. The disciples aren't giving their lives up because Jesus was nice to look at. But because of who Jesus was, Paul is seeing something in Jesus that he wants us to see that he wants the Colossian church to see if they're going to grow into maturity as believers and be able to stand up against the current of opposing opinions of who Jesus is and was, then they need to see something. They need to see three things. Who, that Jesus is who no one else could be. Secondly, Jesus does what no one else could do. And thirdly, Jesus offers what no one else could could offer. So Jesus is who no one else could be. Jesus does what no one else could do, and Jesus offers what no one else could offer. And as we begin this first point, it needs to be stated, there is no shortage of Savior figures in the world. Now, just as then, there's, there's really probably hundreds of options to choose from, and sadly, Jesus isn't topping the list. In Vancouver, 41% of the population claims no religious affiliation at all. Growing on the increase is Sikhism, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, and Judaism. The one on the decline is Christianity. But it shouldn't come as a surprise that most people don't see Jesus as their Lord. 2 Corinthians 4.4, it says, Satan seeks to blind the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. 
Satan tries to keep us from seeing this, but why? Why would he do that? Because if he can keep us from seeing who Jesus truly is, then he can keep us singing songs to lesser things. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Hebrews 1, it's up on your screen, it says, He is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is God's presentation of himself to the world. Jesus is God in flesh, God incarnate. John 1.14, he says, the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, there, there, to be fair, there have been many people who have claimed to be God. This isn't a new thing. Um, it's happened lots before, probably lots since. But none of them actually have been. When we get to our second point, I, I'm going to take some time and I'll show us how we can know definitively whether somebody is in fact God or not. But the bigger question right now is why? Why would God come to earth in the flesh? Or maybe even how? How could God come to earth in the flesh? The idea that Jesus is God that he could have become flesh, it would have ruffled some first century feathers. To the Gnostic, um, Gnosticism taught the material world was wicked, that we need to be saved from it. To them, flesh is not something that God could have come near, much less taken on. The God of Gnosticism wouldn't have left his high, supreme abode to inhabit with sinfulness. They would have been asking the question, how could the God of the world inhabit sinful flesh? To the Jew, the idea of the kind of ineffable, indescribable God coming down and being part of creation would have been scandalous. They would have been thinking, how could an omnipresent God become present in the form of a man? How could he be contained in flesh? Yet in verse 15, Paul is saying he is the image of the invisible God. A former Jew, he says, he is the image of the invisible God. And he goes on to call him the firstborn over all of creation. Now, this word firstborn, um, it trips many up. Uh, if you talk to a Mormon, they'll say this means that Jesus um, was the firstborn, literally from a spiritual union that Jesus had with someone else. And that if you and I mind our P's and Q's, that one day we can go on to um, populate our own future planets. We'll become God of our own world and we'll get to make spiritual babies just like God made Jesus. That's what they teach. To a Jehovah's Witness, I was a Jehovah's Witness as a kid, so I say this with no slander, but they believe Jesus is the first created being, that God actually made him. The problem with both of these is verse 16. It says, for by him all things, meaning the totality of things, were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. If, if Paul was trying to say Jesus is part of creation, he wouldn't have tried to prove this statement by saying in the very next verse that Jesus created all things. It's counterintuitive. 
Paul uses a word here, um, prototokos, which means firstborn. Now, he could have used a different word. If he's saying Jesus was the first thing created, he could have used a Greek word, protoplastos, which means first created, but he didn't use it. He used prototokos. Now, I'm getting nerdy, but all we need to know about this is that it means firstborn, first of in, in order of importance, or that he's preeminent. Now, maybe show of hands, anybody have an over, older sibling here? Yeah, lots of you. So you already know older siblings tend to think that they're better and they deserve more than you. In, in a first century context, though, they actually did get more than you. They, they did. The firstborn would inherit all of the father's estate, and as a result, everyone else would become indebted to him. He would become Lord of the estate and Lord of his brethren, and the rest of his siblings became his servants. So when this word firstborn is, is used, this is the cultural understanding that it's being spoken into. It's a little different than now, but I think it's helpful. I also think how the, the NLT translates verse 15 and 16 is quite helpful as well. It says this, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created, and he's supreme over all of creation. This is what Paul's trying to communicate with firstborn. Christ is supreme over all of creation. He's the maker of it. He's the Lord of it. Therefore, he gets to sovereignly rule it how he sees fit. He's not part of creation. There is no part of creation that does not fall under him. Abraham Kuyper, um, in, in a book of his, he wrote this. I love this quote. There's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. God's, Jesus is Lord of all. He's the firstborn. He's the first inheritor. He is preeminent. He is before all things, verse 17 says, and in him all things hold together. He's the glue that keeps it all moving. What, what's Paul seeing that makes him burst into song? God. God himself, the sovereign of the universe. In a, it's not just Paul that's saying this either. In a... In John 8, 58, we read Jesus saying this, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus uses a name that God identified himself through the burning bush as. Additionally, standing before the Sanhedrin, prior to being crucified, it was Jesus' claim of divinity that caused the high priest to stand up, tear his robes, and scream blasphemy. It's not just Paul calling Jesus God. Jesus calls himself God. But how do we know? How do we know Jesus isn't just some first century guy, kind of a little out there with just a really loyal band of friends? How do we know he is who he says he is? Because this is our second point. Jesus did what no one else can do. There were many teachers at the time, just as there has been before and since, and more likely to come, there have even been people who claim to be God. 
But Jesus did what no one before or after him has done. And there's three things I want to point out that make Jesus truly unique. First, he fulfilled over 350 prophecies. So in the Old Testament, the Hebrew writings, they prophesied what the forthcoming Messiah would look like. Jesus fulfilled 350 prophecies. A, a mathematician, he, he, he tasked 400 or 600 of his students with, with this problem of determining the probability of this happening. And the, the problem was so complex that they actually had to break it down to eight. So they took eight prophecies and said, what is the likelihood, what's the probability of just eight of these being fulfilled in one lifetime in one man? And the number was so big, I mean, it would f more than fill our screen. And so um, as a math professor, he actually took this number and made another problem out of it because um, he's a nerd. But he said, first, blanket the entire Earth's landmass with silver dollars 120 feet high. Second, specially mark one of these dollars and randomly bury it. Thirdly, ask a person to travel the earth blindfolded and select out the marked dollar from the trillions of other dollars. But get this, Jesus didn't just fulfill eight. He filled, fulfilled 350. Secondly, he prophesied future events that have since come true. And thirdly, he fulfilled his own prophecy. Now, that might sound like the fallacy of self-fulfilling prophecy, if you don't know what that is. It's sometimes an, uh, a columnist or say like a stock market analyst, they'll say this stock is gonna crash like Tesla right now if you watch the news at all. And what it'll cause is a bunch of people to lose confidence in the stock and therefore go and sell it and therefore self-fulfill its own prophecy. But this is not what's happening. Jesus is not may having any sort of commentary on the first market, the first century stock market. Read with me, Matthew 16, 21, Jesus said, or pardon me, the, the text says that from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day raise. Jesus prophesied what other people would do to him. Jesus prophesied what would happen to him. And Jesus prophesied something that was completely impossible to make happen. And then get this. It happened. It happened. That puts Jesus in a class of his own. I mean, Buddha came down. He, he had some commentary. He, he claimed to have reached enlightenment and see um, how, how things were going to go and what you needed to do in order to escape the cycles of death and rebirth. But conveniently, no one's heard from the guy since. The Sikh gurus, they claimed, you know, to have truths that would gain one entrance into heaven. But then after they died, conveniently, they, they stayed dead as well. The founder of the Baha'i movement, Baha'u'llah, he claimed that all religions are essentially the same and that if you and I are essentially good, that we'll essentially inherit eternal life. But he more than essentially has stayed dead for the last hundred years. Islam teaches that, if, that God is one, that Muhammad's his prophet, that if you and I are morally good, that we'll inherit the afterlife. But guess what? No one has heard from Muhammad since he died either. How 
can we know they're telling the truth? How can we know they're telling the truth? You need a whole other level of faith to believe these sorts of things. One might even argue gullibility. To put your trust in something that hasn't proved itself. Me believing that if I go out to the middle of the Lionsgate Bridge on my way home and hop off, that angels will catch me does not make it happen. That's stupidity. That's not faith. Hear this. Faith is not blind, church. Now, many of us, we grew up in church and we grew up hearing that because people didn't know the answers to the questions we were asking. Christianity doesn't require that you commit intellectual, intellectual suicide to believe in it. In fact, it's the most existentially satisfying worldview that there is and that it has answers to these questions. It also has the fact that Jesus did something that proved to us that this teaching was true. What's this thing? How do we know Jesus is God? How do we know the gospel that he preached is in fact true and trustworthy? Because he did what no one else could do, no one else has done, and no one will ever do, is that he came back from the dead. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth and heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, I'm 35 years old. I heard somebody say, you look good for 35, thank you. <laughs> I know I'm 35 because I was born in uh, 1983, and it's 2018. A.D., Anno Domini, year of the Lord, the entire date system has been rearranged around Jesus. Soldiers, after he was crucified, placed Jesus into a sealed tomb. Roman centurions, the most highly trained soldiers of the time, stood guard at the front of it, and yet he disappeared. The news overturned the world at the time. Anyone could have came forward and said, well, no, actually, he didn't disappear. There's his body. The people who were in turn killed because they wouldn't renounce their faith that he had resurrected from the dead. They could have said, oh, psych, we stole it. Don't kill me. It's hidden over here. But that never happened. And we know 11 of his disciples gave their life for this. Jesus validated his message in a way that no other teacher in all of history has by proving through resurrecting from the dead that he was who he said he was. Paul is singing because Jesus is unlike anyone before or after him. Paul is singing because no one else has done what Jesus has done. And Paul is breaking into spontaneous praise at just the mention of Jesus because Jesus offers, thirdly, what no one else can offer. Now, all religions essentially kind of agree on three things. There's, there's something wrong with the world. There's something beyond all of this. We're not yet there, and there's something we need to do to get there. Now, some will say, I mean, Buddhism says you need to detach from all desire. You know, part of the eightfold path to get there is you need to practice yoga tantric breathing, a number of different things. Other religions will say, you need to keep a list of rules. Maybe it's 
to the Jewish family, you need to circumcise your child, or maybe it's you need to pray towards the east five times a day. Whatever it is, there, there's rules that we think we need to keep in order to be made right. The gist of all religion, there's something wrong, but it's up to us to fix it. And, and we're prone to adhering to lists of rules like this, but also inventing them. If you don't think you invent them, or that you don't think you do this, I, I've said this before, but think about what makes you feel better than someone else. What do you do or what don't you do that makes you feel superior to your coworkers or your neighbors? We've all got a standard like this. We all have this propensity. The bad news is if, if that's what's going to get us to heaven, it's bad. It's really, really bad for us because we can't pull it off. It's impossible. We're prone to falling short. If perfection is the way to heaven, we're in trouble. To quote one of my favorite musicians from my childhood, Matthew Good, Vancouver artist, he said, if heaven's for clean people, it's vacant. Even if we could get ourselves clean, okay, just grant it, let's just grant that, we could get ourselves clean. Even if hypothetically we could live the perfect life, John Calvin in Institutes, he said this, had man remained free from all the stain of sin, he was too humble a condition to penetrate to God without a mediator. Our problem is such that it's not something we can remedy on our own. We need somebody to do it for us. And in fact, the only way it's ever going to work is if it doesn't depend on us at all. Here's thing, six things, they're all up on the screen now, that Jesus alone offers. One, Jesus alone came from heaven. John 3.13, it says, No one has ascended to heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus here is in a class of his own. He's the only one who's ever gone up, and he's the only one who's ever come down. Jesus alone. Secondly, Jesus alone is holy. Jesus is God, born of a virgin, who lived the perfect life, who alone is sinless. Therefore, he's the only one who could be a suitable sacrifice for us. He's the only one who could stand as our mediator. Couldn't be, it couldn't be another man. It couldn't be just a really good guy. It had to be a perfect man. It had to be God. Thirdly, he had to offer himself as our ransom. And Jesus is the only one who's ever done that. Matthew 20, 28 says, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The idea that God would stand in our place, take the punishment we deserve is possibly the most scandalous thing anybody, or most certainly that I've ever heard. Fourth thing, Jesus is Trinitarian. Because we needed God to stand in our place, we, all, we needed a God who could not only stand in our place and receive the punishment we deserved, but stand in the other place and administer the, the punishment we deserved. If it's not a Trinitarian God, we're still in our sins. Fifthly, Jesus alone has come back from the grave, thereby demonstrating his divinity and evidencing the eternal life that he claimed only he could give. John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. And this leads us right in to the sixth thing that Jesus alone does. Jesus alone offers salvation not based on our credentials. 1 John 4, 9 and 10, it says this. 
In this is the love of God. Pardon me, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This word propitiation, just a 50 cent term for a suitable substitute. He sent his son to stand in our place. I said at the beginning, the level of hope that one has is directly related to who somebody says Jesus is. If this, if Jesus was just a first century sheep petting Galilean hippie who had some, you know, great little tidbits of information, some profound statements, then we are, as the Bible says, of most people to be most pitied. Because he had more, he was more than just some dude handing out fortune cookie inserts and prescriptions on how to please God. He had to be God. But he had to be man as well. And since he was God, he could cross that gap that we never could. But since he was man, he could stand in our place. Since he was God, he could absorb the totality of the wrath that was reserved for us. And since he was man, he could also be killed. But since he was God and therefore sinless, death could not hold him. Death is a a consequence of sin. And this is why Muhammad and Buddha, they've all stayed dead because they're sinners. Jesus alone resurrected because he's the only one who had no sin. Man, somebody say amen. This is good, good news. Romans 10, 9, it says to us, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's all we need to do. That's good news. This is the good news of what Jesus offered. It says, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, that's me. That's all of us. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. If you put your faith in Christ, he's died the death you deserve in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Paul's singing because of who Jesus is, what Jesus did and what Jesus alone can offer. And if we properly behold this sure church, we won't be able to keep ourselves from singing as well. This is good news. Paul says all of this is stored up in heaven for us. This should make us sing. But our text this morning, it closes with a word of warning. Verse 23 says all this. Then it says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you've heard. He says all this, but then he says if, because he knows that there are other people, there's other systems, there's other worldviews vetting for the place of Savior in our hearts. There's other ideologies, there's other objects of worship, there's other beliefs that are vying for the place only he deserves. The reason Paul is singing this to the church in Colossae, the reason that these eight verses have been preserved for the last 2,000 years is because the threats against the truth are not just then, they're now. And they're not just out there, they're right here in our own heart. Our problem is not that we live in a sinful culture, Our problem is that we have a sinful heart. Our hearts will try to get us to shift from the hope of this gospel. 
our hearts will try to lure us away into something that it will tell us is more promising in the moment. They'll tell us other things are better news, whether that's putting our hope in a payday or a person, a future spouse, our house selling, a vacation, whatever it is, our hearts are the ones that try to lure us away. But we need to remain, as Paul has said here, stable and steadfast. Other, other translations, um, they've worded this, anchored. We need to stay anchored. Or to go back to the analogy from Psalm 1 that we used last week. We need to be deeply rooted by the stream of living water. If we're a, if we're a tree, then this is the stream that we need to be rooted beside. We can only drink from what Jesus offers if our roots are plunged deep into this. Jesus is who no one else could be. Jesus does what no one else could do, and Jesus offers what no one else can. Paul urges us, don't take our eyes off of Jesus. He wants us to see how glorious he is, how outlandish it is, how scandalous this news is so that we can live our lives enamored by and in worship to Jesus. And so, short church, let me close by asking us a couple things. Does your heart sing when you hear these words about Jesus? When you hear these truths, does your heart sing? If it holds back, I just encourage you, take a moment and examine your heart and go, what else am I singing for? And then take a look at it and go, is that... How's that going to work in the end? Compare it to Christ. It's going to fail miserably. We all need to be doing this. We all need to be recalculating our route, refocusing our vision. So just to answer that, what is making your heart sing? Where is your heart rooted? Remind yourself, there's hope nowhere else. As the band comes forward, I want to lead us into a time of response here. Um, There's few ways we're going to respond. First of which is I'd encourage you, take a minute, examine your heart. Just examine your heart, but most importantly, remember what Jesus has done on your behalf. Remember this picture of Jesus that Paul has sung to us this morning. Then come forward and to celebrate this, take the bread symbolizing Christ's body broken on our behalf and dip it into the wine or juice, which symbolizes and represents his, his blood that should have been ours. We take that, we dip the bread into the wine or the juice, and remember that just as the bread will absorb the wine, Jesus absorbed the wrath of God on your behalf, and now there's none left for you. And so we come forward and we take this, so every week our heart will refocus on the truth of this. This is our singular hope, church. Then we're going to join in corporate worship and sing along with the band the praises that are due to Jesus alone. If you want somebody to pray with you, we've got a couple in the corner. I'll be in the back. I'd love to pray with you as well. And let me just say this, that if this morning you're sitting here and you've never before given your life to Christ, this is the first time you're hearing the words of this gospel, don't come forward and take communion. Stay right in your seat and take Jesus today. The offer extended to you as well. Romans 10, if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you believe that God raised him from the dead and you would turn and you'd call him Lord this morning, salvation's available for you as well. Let me close us in a word of prayer.
Well, Jesus, I thank you for this glorious revelation of yourself. Thank you that you're not a God who sits off far and distant and waits for us to climb up to you. You're a God who crossed the greatest gap of all time and came down to us, did what we could have never done. You took on human form so that we could be rescued. I just pray, just strike our hearts with that this morning. Fill our visions with that. Replenish our joy as we think on that. Forgive us for turning to to lesser things constantly. We're prone to it. And I thank you for grace that abundantly covers all of this as we come back and just cry, Jesus, be Lord of my life. So I pray, Holy Spirit, just come minister to hearts Be present and be glorified, Jesus, through the the worship that we now bring. And I pray this in your mighty name to the Father. Amen.